Hey there, welcome back to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Aulani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. Today's story didn't happen on Halloween, but in the spirit of Halloween, I chose to tell this story this week because it was included in one of the most iconic and one of my personal favorite horror movies of all time, Candyman. Plus, regardless of the holiday, this story, like all the stories featured here, is very important to tell. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the horrors of living in a housing project, but for people who don't know how dangerous the projects are, it's a good starting point. I won't be talking about the movie Candyman, but if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor after listening to this episode and treat yourself to an amazing piece of cinema. And if you have seen Candyman, then you may already have an idea of who our story is about today. My primary source for this episode comes from the Chicago Reader article written by Steve Bogira and published on September 3rd, 1987. I only made a few edits to it, so I just want to make sure that he gets rightful credit for his writing. Before we jump into the horrifying true story featured in Candyman, though, I do need your help finding another missing indigenous woman. Mary Reberg is always looking for what she's lost. Eight long years have passed, and she keeps searching. She vows to never give up. She can't. Her friend, her best friend, has been missing for 22 years. Sharon Anderson, 50 years old, disappeared December 2nd, 2000. Mary Reberg found her friend Silver Toyota 4Runner in the parking lot of the Everett Mall in Washington. Police suspect foul play in the late Goodwin woman's disappearance. Sharon told family that she had planned to go shopping. At 9 a.m. that day, she kissed her husband goodbye and left their Stanwood, Washington residence. She said she'd return at 4.30 p.m. that day. When she didn't, her family went looking for her. Sharon's pickup truck was discovered by her best friend Mary in the mall parking lot, near Mervyn's department store. This was at 10 p.m. on the evening of her disappearance. The truck was locked. There were no presents, but Sharon's cell phone and the gun she carried for protection were inside the vehicle. There's been no activity on Anderson's credit cards, bank accounts, or social security number since December 2nd. Her friends and family checked pawn shops to see if someone had pawned her distinct custom-designed wedding set, but uncovered no clues. The diamond in the ring is flanked in black onyx and set in white gold. Sharon's best friend says that she would have never walked away from her kids or her grandkids, and that her grandkids were the light of her life. She was also known to be very dependable at work. She was employed as a social worker at the Department of Social and Health Services at the time of her disappearance. Sharon's family and friends launched an exhaustive search. They've handed out hundreds of flyers, spoken to psychics, and brought in tracking dogs. Every time an unidentified person has been found, Reberg calls the coroner in that county. Sharon Anderson has been declared legally dead, but that doesn't mean her family or friends have given up hope of finding her. Sharon is biracial, half-white, half-Cherokee, with brown hair and brown eyes. Her nickname is Sherry, and she may use the last name Sybin. Sharon also has a tattoo on her left shoulder. Sharon's date of birth is October 7, 1950. She was 50 at the time of her disappearance and would be 70 now. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 8 and 130 pounds. She was last seen wearing a green jacket, blue jeans, and white sneakers. If you have any information on Sharon Anderson's whereabouts, please contact the Everett Police Department at 425-257-8483. Her NamUs ID is 1249. 
When we return from the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. Hi, creeps and freaks. Creepies and freakies. I'm Michelle. And I'm Courtney. And we are in the nick of crime. We come to you weekly with true crime, some spook spooks, and a little bit of comedy. We focus on being a voice for victims. But we also like to rake the offenders through the coals. We can never really seem to take ourselves too seriously, but we do hope you'll join us. So keep it creepy and stay freaky. And we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. Ruthie Mae McCoy was terrified. Someone has threatened my life, she gasped to the woman sitting next to her. They were riding in a van that was taking them home from an outpatient psychiatric center at Mount Sinai Hospital. The woman urged Ruthie to relate her fears to a staff member at the clinic, but she said she didn't want to get anyone else involved. Ruthie McCoy, 52, went through much of her life afraid. She was hounded by paranoia. Her fears weren't soothed by her dwelling place the last four years either, a high-rise building in a near-southside Chicago housing authority project known as Abla, where the van dropped her off this Wednesday afternoon, April 22nd. Abla includes the Jane Adams Homes, Robert Brooks Homes, Loomis Courts, and Grace Abbott Homes. Adams, Brooks, Loomis, and Abbott together formed Abla. She lived in one of the seven 15-story, brown, Y-shaped towers named the Grace Abbott Homes, which were one of the most dangerous buildings in Abla. A claustrophobe in a closet might be more at ease than a clinically paranoid person like Ruthie Mae McCoy in an Abbott high-rise. The buildings feature dark, malfunctioning elevators, pitch-black stairwells, and cocaine and PCP attics on nearly every floor. Fiends really are lurking in the shadows here, In these towers, you're crazy if you're not always looking over your shoulder. Ruthie lived at the end of a corridor on the 11th floor of the building at 1440 West 13th Street. At a quarter to nine this April evening, Chicago police got a 911 call from Ruthie McCoy. I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know, the frantic voice began. What are they doing, ma'am? asked the dispatcher. Ruthie's response is unintelligible on tape, but apparently the dispatcher caught her gist. They want to break in, he asked. Yeah, they threw the cabinet down. From where? I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can reach, uh, can reach my bathroom. They, they want to come through the bathroom. All right, ma'am. At what address? 1440 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. The elevator's working. 1109? All right. What's your name, ma'am? Ruth McCoy. All right, I'll send you the police. The dispatcher wasn't certain what Ruthie had been trying to report. What could she have meant by they threw the cabinet down and they want to come through the bathroom? Nevertheless, he closed the phone call in order to send a beat car on its way. 
He assigned a 12th district car to answer a disturbance with a neighbor complaint at 1440 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. That he didn't report the call as a break-in attempt may explain why police hadn't yet arrived at Ruthie's door at 9.02, when another 911 call came in concerning apartment 1109. This one was from a woman who said she had been walking through the hallway and heard gunshots from the apartment. At 9.04, another neighbor called to report gunshots and hollering from 11.09. Two more police cars headed to the scene. Four officers apparently arrived at Ruthie's door around 10 minutes after 9. They pounded on the door, announced their presence, and called for Ruthie. No answer. They asked the dispatcher to call her on her phone. We think somebody may be in there holding somebody, an officer told the dispatcher over the radio. The officers listened to the phone ring and ring and ring. There were two more officers downstairs, and they drove over to the project office, a block away on Loomis, to get to the key to 1109. But the key didn't fit Ruthie's lock. This left the officers wondering what to do. Should they break into the apartment? Talking with neighbors didn't help much. Nobody answered across the hall, the apartment next door was vacant, and the neighbors in the apartment down the hall said no, they hadn't heard or seen a thing. Other neighbors on the floor said an elderly woman lived in 1109. They say that she always answers her door, one of the officers told the dispatcher in a hesitant voice, and there's no answer, so... I don't know if maybe she answered to the wrong person or what. The officers contacted the project office again, but the janitor there said he had no other key for 1109. And so, at 9.48 p.m., the police left Ruthie McCoy's building and the housing project. The following evening, police got a call from Deborah Lasley, an 11th floor neighbor of Ruthie's. Lasley said Ruthie normally stopped by her apartment on her way out of the building every morning and upon her return in the afternoon, but this day, she hadn't stopped by at all. Lasley had seen police at Ruthie's door the night before, and she was worried. About a half dozen police officers and four or five CHA security guards arrived on the scene. Their knocks and calls for Ruthie went unanswered. Most of the police officers thought they ought to break down the door, neighbors say, but the security guards discouraged them. One of them raised the possibility of the tenant suing if the police broke in. And if you bust down the door, security guards told the police officers, you'll have to get someone up here to secure it. The police officers shrugged and left. The next day, Lasley notified the project office of her concerns. At about 1 p.m., a project official arrived at Ruthie's door with a carpenter who drilled through the lock. They found her in the bedroom lying on her side in a pool of blood, a hand over her chest, one shoe on and one off. Papers, magazines, and coins were strewn around her on the floor. When police later turned her slightly, the faint smell of rotting flesh rose through the apartment. She had been shot four times, probably with a gun of medium caliber, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy stated. One bullet passed through her left shoulder, another passed through her left thigh. A third entered the right side of her abdomen, pierced the liver, and exited the left side of the abdomen. The fourth and fatal bullet passed through her right upper arm, then entered her chest and severed the pulmonary vein. The medical examiner listed the cause of death as internal bleeding. Ruthie McCoy probably didn't die immediately, but because of the injury to the pulmonary vein, which is a principal blood vessel in the lung, it's doubtful she lasted long. She probably wouldn't have survived even if she had been taken quickly to a hospital. She was pronounced dead at Cook County Hospital at 4.35 p.m., Friday, April 24th. 
Unless there's something extraordinary about it, or unless there's a news hole needing plugging, a murder in a CHA project isn't going to make the Sun-Times or the Tribune. Project killings just aren't news ordinarily. CHA residents are blown away, knifed, and kicked to death almost every week, two or three times a week in warmer weather. Ruthie McCoy was only one of three Abla residents murdered in the waning days of April. Two days after her body was found, unknown assailants used a stick in their hands and feet to beat to death a 40-year-old man who lived in an Abla row house. The killing occurred on a street just two blocks east of Ruthie's building. Three days after that, a 25-year-old female resident of one Abbott high-rise ended an argument with a 20-year-old resident of Ruthie's building by plunging a knife into her chest. That killing took place just outside Ruthie's building. The murder of a middle-aged, mentally ill CHA tenant merited coverage soon afterward only in the Black-owned Defender. Ruthie McCoy probably knew her attacker or attackers, police said in the Defender story, because there was no indication they had forced their way in. The Tribune did run a brief story on the Ruthie McCoy murder on June 10th after a second suspect had been arrested and indicted. The killing apparently had been made newsworthy by a new fact. Detectives had determined, and the Tribune reported in the story's lead, that Ruthie's killers had entered her apartment through her medicine cabinet. They removed the cabinet in the adjacent apartment, broke through McCoy's cabinet, and climbed through the wall into her apartment. The article also noted that Ruthie had heard the intruders attempting to break in and called 911, that someone else also called 911 and reported gunshots from the apartment, but that when police arrived, they knocked on the door, got no answer, and left. Her body was discovered two days later, the article said. The facts disclosed in the Tribune article raised some intriguing questions. What kind of place is it where a person can get killed by people coming through her medicine cabinet? And how could police, having received those 911 calls, neglect to enter Ruthie McCoy's apartment that first night? But these angles apparently didn't captivate news editors. The Tribune article, which ran deep in its Chicagoland section, would be the last story on the killing in any Chicago daily, the Defender included. The editor's indifference is understandable. In CHA towers, babies have been tossed out of windows and teenagers shoved down elevator chutes. Intruders sometimes bust right through apartment walls to rape and murder tenants. So what's so unusual about a medicine cabinet murder? News of who got killed and how many had quickly buzzed through the Abbott high-rises long before the Tribune story. Not many were shocked, says an Abbott janitor. You get desensitized by what goes on here every day, the janitor says. It's animalism over here. That's the prevailing life condition of the people. Animalism where you worry about those who are stronger and you care nothing about those who are weaker. The mode of entry didn't startle residents of the high-rise. Abbott intruders have been breaking into their apartments through medicine cabinets for at least a year. Even the kids who lived there knew that you could slither from one apartment to the adjacent one through the pipe chase, about two and a half feet across between the cabinets. The cabinets themselves, secured only by six nails, are no obstacle. In some areas of the building, you can even climb vertically in the pipe chase to an apartment above or below the one you start in. It's the way to go from one apartment to the next even if you're not killing nobody, the janitor says. Gangbangers who take over a pair of adjacent vacant apartments now often link them by taking down the medicine cabinets, providing an escape route should security or police enter one of the apartments. This escape hatch is particularly effective, says Area 4 Detective Ray Lucer, who investigated the Ruthie McCoy murder, because the medicine cabinet opening is small, only about a foot and a half wide, and there are pipes to squirm past. 
A lot of policemen wouldn't be able to make it through there, Lucer says. I think I wouldn't even be able to make it through. The death of Nancy Clay, a white suburban white-collar worker in a loop high-rise blaze in May, and indications that the 911 system had failed her prompted weeks of media coverage, a city council investigation, a council hearing featuring testimony by the fire commissioner, broadcast live on public radio, and several proposed ordinances. The performance of the police in the Ruthie McCoy case didn't even merit a departmental investigation. A police department spokesperson first stated that she couldn't discuss the officer's actions in the Ruthie McCoy case because a full-scale investigation was in progress. Everyone would be interviewed, the officers, the security guards, neighbors. When inquired later about the progress of the investigation, the spokesperson said she had been mistaken. There really was no investigation, nor a need for one. Captain Raymond Risley, an assistant to the superintendent, said an informal check he conducted satisfied him that the officers had acted properly in not breaking into Ruthie's apartment. Had the 911 calls come from somewhere other than a housing project, the officers perhaps would have forcibly entered the apartment to check on the resident. But allegedly, so many 911 calls from the projects are hoaxes, and officers have to consider when choosing their course of action. No neighbors or security guards were contacted for this inquiry. The department wouldn't disclose the identities of responding officers either. But then, in Abbott homes, where elevators sit out of order for days and burned-out light bulbs in the corridors and stairwells aren't replaced for weeks, and apartments remain vacant for months, finding a body in a day and a half is pretty efficient. Like other CHA projects made up mainly of high-rises, Abbott homes is characterized mostly by its stagnancy. Bounded by Roosevelt and 15th, Loomis and Ashland, it's a little island with no through streets. The project's designers thought that by eliminating the streets, they could give residents more recreational space and a heightened sense of community. Today, Abbott's open spaces are seldom used, save by residents trying to get home before they get jumped. The lack of through streets has helped isolate the project from the rest of the world. No one can even drive through the development. For Abbott residents, there's no need for streets. Most of them aren't going anywhere. Fear of crime keeps them pinned to their apartments day in and day out. Something harder to understand welds many residents to this place for generations. They have kids and grandkids down the hall. Beneath the more sensational details of the Ruthie McCoy murder is the story of Ruthie May herself, a mentally ill woman trying to survive in a CHA project. Miss May, as she was known at Abbott, used to dress like a bag lady, curse strangers, and wave a stick at teens in her path. But she had turned over a new leaf in the months before her death, neighbors say. She was dressing decently, she was less ornery, often even pleasant. She left the project early most weekday mornings because she was going to school. Mentally ill residents of CHA projects face a double struggle. They have demons inside them to battle as well as the ones around them. But Ruthie was on the verge of escaping the project madness. Two months before her death, with the help of a social security field representative and staff members at the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center, Ruthie had gotten approved to receive Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, Federal Aid for the Physically and Mentally Disabled. This raised her monthly income from the $154 she had been receiving from general assistance to $340. SSI is paid retroactive to the date of application, and Ruthie applied in September, so the first check she was sent, dated February 10th, was a big one, for $1,979. Ruthie intended to use most of her windfall to get out of public housing, but she also bought a few things, a plain winter coat, 
a few other clothes and some inexpensive household items. People in the project, very observant, noticed. Detectives think the killers invaded her apartment because they figured she had a tidy sum stash there. The money she planned to use to get out of the Abbott homes got her killed instead. Ruthie's killers weren't the only ones after her money. I am not kidding about loving you, a Baptist preacher from Fort Lauderdale wrote her. I feel like you are a part of my actual family. Yes, I do. Will you look into your pocketbook and give Jesus a beautiful love offering of the largest bill you have? Or maybe you want to write a nice check. An Ohio minister offered to send her a special, personal bottle of water from the River Jordan in exchange for her donation. A New York minister sent her a piece of sacred, anointed wood that she was to knock on three times and sleep on for one night only, then return in the mail with a donation of $18. Solicitations from fundamentalists predominated among the papers still scattered across Ruthie's bedroom floor more than a month after her murder. Directives from public agencies relating to her welfare grants comprised most of the remainder of her papers. There was also a math workbook and civics worksheets, which Ruthie had been using in GED courses at Mount Sinai in pursuit of a high school equivalent degree. Her daughter, Vernita McCoy, 25, hated to see Ruthie May send any of her few dollars to preachers. Don't you understand? It's just a big con, she'd tell her mother. Ruthie May would respond, you don't have any faith you don't believe in anything. Vernita would say, it's not that I don't believe in anything. I just know a con when I see one. But Ruthie May would send the money anyway. She had a mind of her own, Vernita says. The apartment was nearly bare otherwise. Relatives had come weeks before to pick up her belongings. Through the opening in her bathroom wall where the medicine cabinet ought to have been, you could see the pipes that her killers wriggled past, and beyond that, the bathroom of 1108. The medicine cabinet in 1108 was later confiscated by the state's attorney's office as evidence. Ruthie's cabinet was never found, and it's not known whether it was in place before the intruders came through the wall. Vernita maintains that burglars broke into her mother's apartment through the medicine cabinet once before, the previous year, and although Ruthie may have reported the break-in, no one from CHA ever re-secured the cabinet. Margaret Barrage, Ruthie May's next-door neighbor until she moved out in early April, says that she recalls seeing the cabinet leaning against the tub in the bathroom earlier that year. There's no record in Ruthie's housing file of her ever reporting a break-in or problem of any sort with her medicine cabinet, a CHA spokesperson says. Still taped to Ruthie's white cinder block bathroom wall on either side of the space for the medicine cabinet were pages from religious magazines describing miracles. God will be your dentist, declared the clip on the left. Under that banner was a photograph of a young girl, mouth agape, a finger on the teeth that God had filled with silver, according to the accompanying story. On the other side of the opening was a story from the Power of the Holy Ghost magazine. Thyroid condition vanishes, disclosing how the bulges in a woman's neck disappeared during Holy Week. The woman had discovered that the lumps were gone, the story said, when her husband, who had taken the bathroom mirror down to wallpaper, put it back up. A spooky clip to see, knowing what happened to McCoy. Was she waiting for some similar redemption to come through her bathroom mirror? A few relatives attended the church service held for her on the south side on April 30th. She was buried in Homewood that afternoon. Life was hard for Ruthie May, noted the bulletin distributed at the service. She was born in Hughes, Arkansas, one of eight children. When she was small, her family, like numerous Southern Black families then, 
moved to Chicago's south side, looking for a more prosperous life. But the promise of the big city was sweeter than the reality. Just scraping along was a challenge for a large family in the teeming Black Belt. Ruthie May's father, who was 87 when she died and still living on the south side, loaded coal onto wagons in various yards, earning a meager wage. Ruthie May attended Phillips High School for little more than a year. Signs of mental illness began appearing when she was in her 20s. Her relatives say they don't know the exact nature of her illness and offer only hazy accounts of how it showed itself. She talked to herself and she would burst with anger unexpectedly. Her mother, a devout Baptist, chased us into church and taught us the way of the Lord, says one of her brothers, Haywood McCoy. Now her siblings propose mainly spiritual explanations for what went wrong with Ruthie May. There's such a thing as the devil, you know, says Beatrice Gilbert, one of her sisters. Haywood believes Ruthie May's problem began when she got out of God. A street preacher who says he can heal the sick and cast out devils, Haywood prayed for his sister. But you see, people have got to want help, he said. Ruthie May never married. She was 27 when Vernita, her only child, was born at Cook County Hospital. The father didn't stick around long, and his desertion left Ruthie May bitter at men in general. Vernita had to stay with relatives off and on as a child because her mother was institutionalized several times. She managed okay when she was taking her medicine. When she wasn't, she talked to herself and sometimes swore at strangers on the street. Ruthie May's hulking frame may have discouraged others from retaliating. She was 251 pounds, 5 feet 11 inches at her death, the coroner would determine. She worked some menial jobs, laundromat attendant, housekeeper, but her mental problems prevented her from holding a job more than a month or two, and she spent most of her adult life on aid. She and Vernita lived in Dearborn Homes, a south side housing project during Vernita's early years, and then in cramped ghetto apartments on the south and west sides. Vernita spent some time in Cook County Jail in 1983 after being convicted of aggravated battery. Ruthie May took care of Vernita's one-year-old while Vernita was in Cook County Jail. When her basement apartment in Humboldt Park flooded, Ruthie May applied for emergency CHA housing. She asked in one letter to the CHA to be placed in Wentworth Gardens, on the south side and near relatives. In another letter, she asked specifically not to be placed in a high-rise. But beggars can't be choosers and she was offered an 11th floor unit in the Abbott homes. In May of 1983, she moved into apartment 1109. The place Ruthie May was offered by CHA, her home of last resort, percolates with violence. Children here are raised amid the tumult and grow accustomed to it. When I first came here, I used to feel so sorry for the children that I would almost cry, the janitor says, just to know the terror they see, but they're so animalistic in their own right and the games they play, I see little kids throwing bricks and bottles at each other, and this is their game. Now I get mad. About 3,600 people live in the Abbott homes, all of them black, most of them younger than 18. Except for a few top drug pushers, everybody's poor. The average family in this census tract was pulling in a cool $4,527 a year, the 1980 census found, and times certainly haven't improved around here since. About 85% of the families are headed by females. The lucky few, about 580 people, reside in 33 two-story row houses. Everyone else is in the seven high-rises. Residents of Abla are beaten, raped, and murdered more than twice as often as they are citywide. 47.8 violent crimes per 1,000 Abla residents in 1986, compared with 22.9 per 1,000 residents citywide. 
There are no crime figures specifically for the Abbott high-rises, but the rate in those buildings, Abla's most hazardous, is undoubtedly far worse. Even by public housing project standards, the place is bad news. Abla ranks fifth among CHA developments in violent crime, its rate significantly worse than that of Cabrini Green, 37.9 violent crimes per 1,000 residents as of 1986. But you don't hear anywhere near as much about this near the Southside Project as you do about Cabrini Green, which sits not far from the Gold Coast, the lakefront, and downtown. The news media offices are closer to Cabrini. It's easy to drive over there, Area 4 Detective Lucer says. They never come over here. They might call on the phone, but they never come. Abbott Holmes's layout is a gangbanger's dream, designed as if to facilitate crime. In a 1972 study of New York City high-rises, renowned housing expert Oscar Newman found that crime rates increased with the height of the buildings, the size of the projects, and the distance of the buildings from the streets. Superblocks of high-rises like Abbott Homes were, in terms of crime, the worst possible combination for public housing, Newman wrote in his 1972 book, Defensible Space, Crime Prevention Through Urban Design. The high-rises promote anonymous living, he wrote, making it less likely that residents will look out for their neighbors. The lack of streets isolates the project and makes routine police surveillance difficult. Writing specifically about the Abbott high-rises, Devereux Boley Jr. echoed these sentiments in The Poor House, his 1978 book on Chicago's public housing. Quote, More than any project built in Chicago to that date, 1955, the overall feeling of Abbott Homes is forbidding and the human scale completely lost. Unfortunately, Abbott Homes was the precursor of the towering slump site developments built in Chicago in the late 50s and early 60s. Cabrini Green, Robert Taylor Homes, Stateway Gardens, and Rockwell Gardens, projects boldly called, quote, an unfortunate legacy of Elizabeth Wood's years as executive secretary at the CHA. Indeed, Elizabeth Wood directed the CHA in the late 40s and early 50s when most of these massive slump site projects were conceived, but she proposed such developments only after the city council blocked her attempts to build smaller projects in various neighborhoods, many of them white, throughout the city. In no project will you find stairwells darker or more forbidding than those in the Abbott Towers. Other projects have screened-in ramps, allowing some natural light to filter into the stairwells, but Abbott's corridors are completely enclosed, so when the light bulbs are burned out or missing in the stairwells, it's pitch black there. And the light bulbs are burned out or missing most of the time. There used to be three janitors per high-rise at Abbott, the janitor says. Now there's usually just one. You got too much work to do to keep going over to the supply room to get light bulbs, he says. And then when you go, there's not any light bulbs, or they give you five or six, and then you put the bulbs in and the tenants steal them. Spiraling drug addiction in Abla has of late made the high-rises even more hazardous, says residents and others whose work takes them into the project. A year ago, we hardly ever had anyone involved in coke here, says Sandy Siegel, clinical coordinator of the Mount Sinai Hospital Community Psychiatric Center, which serves mainly Abla residents. Quote, you had people doing reefer and PCP and some heroin junkies, but cocaine addiction is rampant in those buildings now, and so the need for money has soared. You put that on top of an already bad situation, and it's a nightmare. Major drug dealers have operated out of Abla for years, says Detective Lucer, who's worked in and around the project since 1970. Before, though, drug dealing was limited mainly to young males. Today, many women in Abla supplement their welfare checks by selling cocaine and marijuana. 
Even elderly residents are dealing drugs now, Lucer says, though the seniors usually only sell marijuana. In the early 70s, the typical call for police service at Abla was for drunken disorderly disturbance involving husband and wife, he says. Now, the calls are often for drug-related shootings and stabbings. The chief drug sellers at Abla are a group of black gangster disciples who call themselves the Paymasters. They walk through the building saying, we got what you want, we got what you need, Sandy Siegel says. They tend to wear new clothes, lots of jewelry, and carry hulking radios. The benefits of their trade thus on display for Abla youth, many of whom serve gladly as bootlickers for the gang. Grown-ups in Abla are terrified of the Paymasters, to the extent that most of the residents wouldn't discuss, even anonymously, anything about the gang's operations. A 26-year-old Abla resident was shot to death in May, apparently for selling drugs in Paymaster territory. Suffice it to say, you can get narcotics in Abla a lot quicker than you can get light bulbs. The drugs are out here 24 hours. Four o'clock in the morning, you can find something, says a 28-year-old Abla resident and Mount Sinai Center client. Recovering cocaine addict, this resident used to buy at least five nickel bags, which were $5 each of coke a day. But when his SSI check came, he'd blow almost the whole 340 on one day's high. He says he never stole from strangers to support his habit. He was too frightened of jail. But he did rip off family members incessantly, taking cash and marketable goods from their homes. Most drug addicts he knew, though, had already progressed to burglaries and street pickups. Near Abla, he says, you can't walk down the street without somebody asking you for money or trying to rob you to support their habit. This resident and other addicts would often get high in one of the numerous vacant apartments in Abbott that have been commandeered by the pushers. Apartments are supposed to be boarded whenever they're expected to be vacant more than a few days, but because of the shortage of supplies and because there are so many other pressing jobs, janitors don't always get around to it so quickly. And when an apartment does get boarded, if the pushers really want to use it, they'll get in. They kick the whole frame of the door in. Boarded up doesn't mean anything. There has to be a legal tenant in there. But that's easier said than done. Tenants descend on vacant, unboarded apartments like piranhas, stripping them in no time of everything of value. Sinks, cabinets, doorknobs, light bulbs. Then there's not adequate time or supplies to make the place habitable again. In the building where Ruthie lived, 42 of 148 units are vacant. The pushers also reside illegally in many other apartments whose lease tenants have sublet their units, though this is not allowed by the CHA. The rise in drug addiction and desperation, along with the increase in vacant and illegally tenanted apartments, made almost inevitable this latest project discovery, that tunnels between medicine cabinets could be used to loot neighbors. The bathroom break-ins began occurring around the mid-80s. Four of ten apartments on every floor are vulnerable, the pairs at the end of each floor's two main corridors. The other apartments don't have the back-to-back -back medicine cabinets. If you live at the end of a hall and the adjacent apartment is vacant or housing some unsavory squatters, you're easy prey. But even if the adjacent apartment isn't vacant, there's cause for worry. A resident who lived on the fifth floor of the building in which Ruthie lived was watching TV one February evening with a friend when she saw a figure dart out of her bathroom and race out the front door. Noises in the bathroom alerted her to a second intruder, a 13-year-old boy whose girth slowed him as he attempted to squirm out of the opening where the resident's medicine cabinet had been until the first intruder removed it. The resident's friend held the 13-year-old while they called the police. The 13-year-old confessed that he and the first boy had climbed up the pipes in the chase from a vacant apartment below and that two more boys had been behind him in the wall but had retreated. 
For several months, this tenant tied a rope to the bathroom door at bedtime, pulled the door shut, and tied the other end to her kid's bunk bed. She put out a pail of water for her kids to use as a nighttime toilet. Other Abbott residents positioned the furniture in front of their bathroom doors before going to bed. The buildings were designed with the pipe chases behind the medicine cabinets to provide easy access to the plumbing. If something's leaking, janitors simply have to remove the medicine cabinet to check the pipes. Her first two years in Abbott Homes, Ruthie May shared her two-bedroom apartment with Vernita, Vernita's two young children, and Vernita's boyfriend, Louis Butler. Ruthie May and Louis didn't see eye to eye. At first she liked me, but then she started comparing me with Vernita's dad, Butler says. The way Vernita's father had deserted, Louis says, was Ruthie May's favorite subject. She thought black men were all no good. All they wanted to do was flirt and run around, he said. In 1985, largely because of the tension between Lewis and Ruthie May, Vernita, Lewis, and the kids moved out. Vernita's departure depressed Ruthie May, neighbors say. She especially missed seeing her grandchildren daily. She grew more ornery toward people in the project, especially the kids. She gave no quarter to those who blasted their radios in the hallways, threatening them with the stick she carried with her. They, in turn, threatened and ridiculed her. Police had to intervene several times when Ruthie May got into a scrape. By the time you got on the scene, it was hard to tell who started what, says Area 4 Detective Anthony Manina, who later would investigate Ruthie's murder, but who then worked in a 12th District Patrol. Ruthie lived in constant fear of being mugged or burglarized. She had her lock changed by the CHA at least twice her housing records show. She seemed obsessed with locks. Several neighbors described how she sometimes toured the 11th floor hallway, turning doorknobs, lecturing tenants whose doors she found unlocked. If you heard a car alarm blaring near Abbott Homes, chances were it wasn't a real thief, but Ruthie May, trying to lock a car door. Living alone aggravated Ruthie May's fears and intensified her mental problems. She began eating irregularly, and her weight dropped quickly. In the winter, she was seen lying in the snow near the building, spreading her arms and legs and making angels. And on hot summer days, she wore a winter coat and several pairs of pants. On August 10, 1986, Ruthie May arrived at the emergency room of Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center with Vernita's older child, four-year-old Bobby. The child had deep cuts on his face, arms, and legs. Ruthie May said she had been sitting for him and he had fallen down some stairs. Apparently, Ruthie May was acting somewhat peculiarly, and someone in the emergency room wondered if she had pushed the child down the steps. The Department of Children and Family Services was then called. When Ruthie May got wind of this, she went berserk. She had to be put in leather restraints. The hospital was able to reach Vernita, who came to pick up Bobby and sign the commitment papers for Ruthie May. She was taken to the nearby Illinois State Psychiatric Institute, ISPI. DCFS had no record of ever investigating to see if Ruthie May had abused her grandchild. Vernita says she saw no signs of abuse by Ruthie May. On her worst days, neighbors say, Ruthie May could be a little hard on her grandchildren, hollering at them, pulling them roughly by an arm. Most times, though, she was warm and caring toward them. She was diagnosed at ISPI as a residual-type schizophrenic. Residual-type schizophrenia is characterized by an absence of prominent behavioral problems, but continuing evidence of some of the symptoms of schizophrenia, such as marked social isolation, distinctly peculiar behavior, like talking to oneself in public or collecting garbage, vague or digressive speech, or odd beliefs, superstitiousness, or belief in clairvoyance. Ruthie May was discharged on September 18th, with a recommendation that she get follow-up care at the Mount Sinai Psychiatric Center. 
The vast majority of the clients at the nonprofit state-funded center are ABLA residents. Some aren't suffering from mental illness, as it is traditionally defined, clinical coordinator Sandy Siegel says, but are, quote, caught up in the deprivation and stress of life in the projects. Clients can participate in group therapy sessions, GED classes, arts and crafts projects, and community meals. The center provides a social network for clients and somewhere to go outside of the projects. There isn't much trust in ABLA, Sandy Siegel says, nor reason for it. Quote, one way of surviving there is to not be too friendly, to stay to yourself. You don't want people to get to know your business because that can cause you trouble. And if you get to know people, you're liable to get mixed up in something negative, like drugs. Ruthie May came to the center of her own accord on September 23rd. The psychiatrist who interviewed her found indications of schizophrenia, but not enough to make it clear she was suffering from that illness. She definitely was not beyond the pale, Sandy Siegel says. She integrated quickly, her hygiene was good, her communication skills were good, but she was also extremely frightened and distrustful, weary of the other clients. Ruthie May would get frustrated and upset by some of the business she had to attend in order to run her life. She'd get a letter in the mail from some agency, and she wouldn't know what it said, and she'd get in a panic, thinking her welfare money was going to get cut off. She wasn't illiterate, but some of these letters are so complex, anyone would have trouble reading them. She'd bring in the letters, and coordinator Sandy Siegel would interpret them for her and help her with a follow-up, writing a letter if necessary. This way, she knew she was being looked out for and taken care of. Shown this kind of help, Ruthie May warmed up very quickly. By the beginning of 1987, she was coming to the center three times weekly and participating in the GED classes, the crafts projects, and the group therapy sessions. Because of Ruthie May's age, the GED teacher, Linda Norman, was skeptical when she signed up for the classes. Ruthie May scored at only the seventh grade level on the placement test, but she proved to be an alert, bright student, as well as dependable. She rarely missed any of the three weekly sessions. By April, she was up on the ninth grade level. Six months more, and she probably would have earned her GED. She was assertive and opinionated, a mother figure for the younger women, offering them advice on parenting. She managed to offer these opinions without alienating others. The staff and clients at Mount Sinai saw little evidence of the belligerence Ruthie May was known for at Abla. She was warm and considerate and very well-liked. She talked about religion occasionally, which was nothing surprising. Most of the center's clients, particularly the older women, followed the TV preachers, but religion wasn't something she obsessed about at the center. Her progress was unquestionable. An adjustment in her medicine helped. She had gotten really isolated in the project because she was so afraid to leave her house. The center gave her a feeling of being more connected to the people around her. She was learning to trust people there, to come to them with her troubles. It's not to say Ruthie didn't have problems, but she was doing things to conquer these problems. Neighbors in her building noted the changes. They noted that Ruthie May had gained weight and was dressing and acting more appropriately. Her contentiousness surfaced less and less frequently. For the first time, she seemed enthusiastic about her life. Before, she mainly talked about how much she missed her daughter and her grandbabies, but of late, she had been discussing her own future. She said she wanted to be a nurse. What she talked about most, to neighbors and to clients and staff members at the center, was how dreadful she continued to find life in the Abbott homes. She was afraid to stay there by herself and wished somebody would come live with her. If she had to be in the project, she at least wanted to be on a lower floor or in a row house. She asked CHA officials several times for a transfer. Coordinator Sandy Siegel wrote one of the letters herself for Ruthie May. 
Because Ruthie Mae had high blood pressure and heart problems as well as her mental disability, Sandy Siegel thought such a transfer was more than reasonable. But Ruthie Mae's request was never granted. A CHA spokesperson says she's not sure why. Ruthie Mae realized that what she really needed was to get out of the projects altogether. But she couldn't afford to leave. Her CHA apartment cost her just $46 a month, and on a general assistance grant of $154 a month, she couldn't pay for anything better. When she started receiving SSI in February, she started planning her move out of the projects. Project criminals often prey on the mentally ill, Detective Lucer says, because they know that even if they get caught, their victim will make a poor witness, one whose credibility will be questioned by a judge or jury. The two defendants in the Ruthie McCoy case were charged with murder, home invasion, armed robbery, armed violence, and residential burglary. The home invasion charge indicates the state believes the killers knew Ruthie was home when they broke in. Louis Butler, Vernita's boyfriend, thinks the killers wanted Ruthie there so she could tell them where she had her money stashed. She didn't flee when she heard the noises in the bathroom, Louis speculates, because she probably figured if they're coming in the bathroom, they're waiting outside the door too. So she sat there, not knowing which way to go. She got on the telephone, and that was the only security she had. She tried to use the phone to get the police there. The phone was one of at least three items stolen from Ruthie's apartment. Detectives don't know whether money was also stolen, but only change was found in the apartment. Police recovered a television and a rocking chair that belonged to Ruthie in the home of one of the defendant's friends. The phone hadn't been found. The fact the phone was taken is intriguing. Remember that the dispatcher called her number the night she was shot, and the police officers outside her door heard the phone ring. So the phone had to be stolen after the police left that night. It also means, Detective Lucer acknowledges, that the killers might still have been on the 11th floor when the police arrived, hiding out in an apartment, perhaps the adjacent one. Possibly, they were still in Ruthie's. Police officers can only break into an apartment without a warrant under certain circumstances. They have to believe a crime is in progress or be in fresh pursuit of a criminal. Initially, blame was put on the CHA for not coming up with the key to Ruthie McCoy's apartment the first night, and for their security guards opposing the police officer's desire to break into the apartment the second night. A CHA spokesperson said Ruthie apparently had her lock changed on her own, against CHA rules, and didn't give the project office a key. Tenants can get their lock changed by the CHA under certain circumstances, say if they have a purse snatched and file a police report. But because it takes the CHA weeks to get around to the job, tenants often have the job done themselves rather than worry about a thief who may be walking around with a key to their apartment. Vernita McCoy believes her mother never had the lock changed herself, but that the CHA just failed to file the key or misfiled it when it last changed Ruthie May's lock in 1986. That certainly is a possibility, the janitor says. Quote, we got just three carpenters in Abla for 3,790 apartments, so every key can't get labeled, every key can't get put in its proper place. Whether the guards oppose the idea or not, the police still had the authority to enter the apartment. The police superintendent said two other factors weighed against breaking in the first night as well as the second night. One, that some 11th floor neighbors told the responding officers the first night that they hadn't heard gunshots or seen anything suspicious and two, that the 911 calls had come from a housing project, from which prank calls are the rule, not the exception. The neighbors had to hear gunshots, Vernita McCoy says. The walls are so thin that if you drop a pan, everyone hears it. Nobody's going to get shot four times and the neighbors don't hear anything. They might have just been afraid to talk about it, Vernita says. 
This seems particularly plausible considering the killers may still have been on the 11th floor when the police arrived. There has to be skepticism anytime a resident says that they've seen and heard nothing, cops who've worked in the projects will tell you, given how rampant intimidation is. Police looking for witnesses here often find that no one knows anything about anything. If you get labeled an informant over there, you gotta move, says Perry Smith, who lived on Ruthie McCoy's floor until last year, when he and his family moved out of the projects. Residents had witnessed people talking to the police get gasoline poured on their apartment door and set on fire. And there's no back door, just the windows. The numerous charred front doors in the Abbott high-rises attest to this. Besides Ruthie's apartment and the one across the hall from which the killers came, only one apartment in that wing of the floor was occupied. The elderly woman and her two grown daughters who lived there apparently were the ones who told police they hadn't heard any gunshots. The high proportion of hoax calls the police department receives from housing projects is something an officer has to consider in determining what his appropriate action is, the police superintendent stated. The superintendent bases his assertion that 911 calls from the projects are more likely to be unfounded not on a study the department has conducted, but on, quote, empirical evidence, the experience of the officers who regularly work those beats. We could drag that stuff out in a study, but it would be kind of expensive, he says. Jim Beetlespacher, chair of the 911 Committee for the Association of Public Safety Communications Officers, a national organization, says he knows of no study indicating that calls from housing projects or poor neighborhoods are more likely to be unfounded. There are, on the other hand, several studies indicating that police officers are unduly distrustful of reports of crime from the poor and black. And housing project residents have their own notions, also supported only by empirical evidence, about how police tend to respond to their calls. It's poor people in there. They're not concerned with poor people, says one resident. Maybe they don't care, or maybe they're afraid, too. Margaret Barrage, Ruthie's former next-door neighbor, says she used to call police frequently when she heard fights in the halls or sounds like someone was trying to break into an apartment. After a while, she didn't bother anymore. They would never come up. Former resident Perry Smith stated, They'll come, find out the elevator's not working, and they go out back the door. They're not walking up those stairs. It's probably because of this belief, widely subscribed to in the project, that Ruthie McCoy made a point of saying the elevator was working when she called 911. The two men arrested by police in the McCoy murder both were residents of Abla. Edward Turner, 19, was arrested in his row house apartment a few days after the killing. Unemployed, Edward has no convictions, but had been out on bond on a charge of unlawful use of a weapon. On June 9th, police caught up with the other suspect they were seeking, 25-year-old John Hondras. After getting a tip, he was in a ninth-floor apartment of an Abbott high-rise a block from the one Ruthie McCoy lived in. Officers found him hiding under a bed. Also unemployed, John has previous convictions for robbery and possession of a stolen vehicle. Apartment 1108, the one from which the killers came, was leased, and the rent had been paid on it through May. But Detective Lucer says its tenants were not the lessees. Addicts frequented the apartment. Detectives found no drug paraphernalia in 1108, but they had two days to remove any stuff, Detective Lucer says. They knew the police were going to come sooner or later. The residents of 1108 included relatives of John Hondras. When Detective Lucer inspected Ruthie's apartment after her body was found, he noted the opening in the bathroom wall where the medicine cabinet ought to have been. Beyond the pipes, he could see the back of the medicine cabinet in 1108. When he was in that apartment interviewing its residents, he went to their bathroom and tugged on the medicine cabinet. It seemed secure. 
But after repeated interviews by Detective Lucer and his partner, Detective Menina, several residents of the building fingered John and Edward, saying they had used the medicine cabinet route into Ruthie McCoy's apartment. Sometime after killing Ruthie and before she was found on Friday, they nailed the cabinet in 1108 back in place, the witnesses alleged. This mode of entering an apartment was new to Detective Lucer, but after 17 years of working in Avla, nothing surprises. Someone comes up with a new crime technique, he says, and then they spread the good news to all the others. It would be nice to report that Ruthie McCoy's death has at least prompted the CHA to resolve the medicine cabinet dilemma, but they usually wait until someone dies and then they jump. Indeed, the agency took no steps toward remedying the problem before Ruthie's death, even though several such break-ins had been reported. But it doesn't appear the CHA is doing much even now. CHA Public Affairs Director Helene Colvin minimized the extent of the medicine cabinet problem. The agency had received only isolated reports of such break-ins, fewer than 10 and probably only 7 in the previous 18 months. But even just a half dozen reports of such break-ins in 18 months indicates a serious problem. At least three times as many such break-ins as have been reported have probably occurred because of how often crimes and housing projects go unreported. Helene stated in July of 1987 that the agency had begun securing medicine cabinets in apartments where there's a potential risk. She wouldn't say how the cabinets were being secured or how she defined potential risk. Of the numerous residents of Ruthie's building and other Abbott high-rises who live in apartments at the ends of the halls, including six tenants whose apartments are adjacent to vacant ones, none had a CHA carpenter or janitor even look at their medicine cabinets. Subsequent phone calls to Helene Colvin seeking an explanation were never returned. Vernita McCoy is considering suing the CHA over her mother's death. While landlords in Illinois have no special obligation to safeguard tenants from criminal acts, they've been held liable for crimes that were directly related to the condition of the premises when such crimes were foreseeable. The janitor says the medicine cabinets could be bolted together and attached to the masonry so that they could be removed only with a power tool. This would make it more difficult for janitors and plumbers to check the pipes, but at least it would stop the break-ins, he says. It would be fairly simple and inexpensive. So why isn't it being done? People living in the housing project become hopeless and helpless. They stop dreaming. They don't even have a concept of what it would be like to not be there. Nobody enjoys being there, but it's like the abused child. They're more comfortable. At least they know what to expect. High-rise projects are no place for the healthy, let alone the mentally ill. Had Ruthie McCoy been able to leave her hellhole, her outlook would have been good. Ruthie would have continued to visit the center, completing her GED courses, perhaps getting a part-time job, and managing, even enjoying her life. She was headed in that direction. I need help now getting an apartment somewhere else. I gotta get out of here, Ruthie May told Sandy Siegel on Wednesday, April 22nd not long before she got in the van that took her back to her high-rise home. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for next week's Story from the Mortuary.